This episode of Cognitive Dissonance is brought to you by our patrons. You fucking rock. Hey, this is Jason from Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, so I have to correct you guys on a few things you just said. First of all, Des Moines does get pretty crazy for Cinco de Mayo. You should have should come down here and check it out sometime. We actually have a pretty good uh, Hispanic population here. But more relevant is your comments about Steve King and immigration. You have to remember, they come to places where there's jobs, and agriculture is a main driver here. So the Hispanic population of rural Iowa is actually significant uh, because there's jobs there, meatpacking plants, working fields and in general agricultural particularly hog production so to say that there's no immigrants coming is it's just not right that they, they come here quite a bit the problem is, is well Steve King doesn't represent Des Moines and Steve King doesn't represent a very populated area absolutely he's a racist absolutely he's terrible but what he's saying it does actually impact his constituency but not in the way that you think it does um, he's still terrible and we can still be critical of people like him that are terrible while still being true to the facts so he's garbage but uh, come out here for Cinco de Mayo or anytime and I'll get you a Des Moines beer take it easy Hey, glory hole, guys. Um, just wanted to comment on your discussion regarding the uh, measles outbreaks. Um, a lot of the a lot of the measles outbreak stuff it gets sensationalized in the news because of the dipshit anti-vaxxers who have pushed their absurd agenda. And it is a problem. It is something that needs to be addressed with better education. But just so that you at least hear the other side of the story, I work in a pharmacy in a city that has had a measles outbreak out of the East Coast, and. It's actually really heartening to see we're going through tons and tons of uh, measles vaccines. We're getting boxes of it almost uh, weekly because we're going through it so fast. So, yeah, there's a lot of idiots out there who are pushing their stupid uh, anti-vax agenda. But there's even a lot more people who realize how stupid it is and who are taking precautions to make sure that if their inoculations aren't up to date, they're getting them up to date. So it gives you a little bit of uh, a warm feeling in the heart to see that it's not all just Jenny McCarthy and Jim Carrey and Andrew Wakefield being dumbasses. Floral motherfuckers, bye. Cecil, Tom, you know, we shouldn't be too harsh on the Attorney General. After all, it was his great-grandfather, Bill Barr Baggins, who famously redacted himself from the terrible smog and go to them into the open so the mountain Jews could reclaim their ancient home and treasures. He has a heavy legacy to bear. Glory hold. advise that this show is not for children, the faint of heart, or the easily offended. The explicit tag is there for a reason. Recording live from Glory Hole Studios in Chicago, this is Cognitive Dissonance. Every episode we blast anyone who gets in our way. We bring critical thinking, skepticism, and irreverence to any topic that makes the news, makes it big, or makes us mad. It's skeptical, it's political, and there is no welcome at. This is episode 472 of Cognitive Dissonance, Cecil. We are going to be doing something special this week. And next week, we have a plan to talk about the opioid crisis. Yeah. And it's not just the opioid crisis. It's the pharmaceutical company, Purdue Pharma, um, that's owned by the Sackler family. 
uh, that has been in the news as of late. We, Tom and I consumed a lot of media lot. on this, uh, podcasts, books, and then we've also uh, read several substantial, very long Atlantic stories. I'll tell you what, if you want to, like, you know what, I love the, I subscribe to the paper copy of the Atlantic. Right. I love the Atlantic, sure. it's great. But man, the Atlantic's like, I'm going to tell you a little something, but I'm also going to give you a tremendous amount of superfluous color and detail. Yeah. And I'm going to tell you about the quiet tree-lined street that Dr. <laughs> whatever the fuck grew up on. That's so when he funny. was like, when That's he was, so right? funny. It's the same right? I was thinking the same thing. When he was a kid, he had a tricycle. That's, it was red, oh, and he sometimes Jesus. pedaled it around so from true. Maine to Tree Street. Yeah. And his favorite popsicle was cherry, and sometimes a little bit would drip on his chin, and it would come, and you're just like, oh my fucking God, what happened are you with taking this guy? drugs? Oh, Jesus, that was amazing. I remember listening to that too, and I was just like, Okay, what are we what are we talking about? Here? <laughs> what are what? we talking right. about? But it was a great article. There's a lot of things that we listened to this week talking about the opioid crisis. So to start the show off, yeah. I want to talk about the history of the opioid crisis. Wait, can I can I stop real quick? Yeah. All right. So we should have an opioid game, right? Like a drinking game, but like every time you say Sackler, one of us takes a hydrocodone. Everyone. <laughs> One of us, one of us, one of us crushes an oxy and a dollar bill, and then snorts the, the most, fucking thing. Be the most fun. All right, every time, oh, every Christ. time somebody says Purdue Pharma, uh, you put another fentanyl patch on your arm. I got to Let's start, let's start out the show with right. personal stories. Do you have any personal stories of 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 uh, any kind of opioids at all? I do have yeah. personal stories. Yeah. Um, somebody uh, that I was close with once. Um, was definitely addicted to to oxy, um, and it, like it's it's funny to um, like to experience that from the outside. Um, the amount of like um, the amount of disassociation that it creates, and the and the amount of like memory loss that that creates is absolutely fucked up. Yeah, like it's a really fucked up drug to take over any course, any significant course of time. And my own personal experience, I, when, when I, I had meningitis and when I had it, I took a bunch of pain meds and I like have no memories from that yeah. time period. Yeah. Like very, very few. Um, and then, you know, recently I had, I had some back problems and when I went to have those, um, you know, addressed and, and what have you. And I, I've had them for about six years before I got them fixed. Man, it's hard not to get drugs. Yeah, it's for hard it. not to get that particular drug, especially, right? Yeah. It was hard not to get some kind of an opiate. Yeah. Like you would go, like you'd be like, and, and I would say at the outset, like, I don't have any interest in opiates. You know, I've got this issue. I'd like to look at, you know, some ways to, to sure, deal with it. Sure. And they'd be like, I, I mean, you should probably have. You should probably just do the opiates. And yeah. then when I had the surgery recently, like they gave me like a month's supply yeah. of hydrocodone. Yeah. I needed a day's worth. Yeah. Like you don't need that much. You're yeah. not in that much fucking pain. Yeah. Like the expectation that you're just gonna be like, I don't know, fucking, I have a headache, so I took fucking morphine. Like I said, yeah. you fucking, like we take knockout drops for a stubbed toe. Yeah, I had a a close close friend of mine, uh, almost OD yeah. on uh on pain pills. I think they were Norco's, um, and those are interesting because they're both an opioid. And they're a Tylenol type, mm -hmm. acetaminophen, right? And so your liver can't produce or can't do a bunch with it. Like if you, you can OD on Tylenol, it's pretty easy actually yeah. to OD on Tylenol. 
they had taken uh, enough uh, pills to be admitted to the hospital. Yeah. And it was a scary moment for a lot of people, um, a lot of people that were very close to that person. So I, I've, I've dealt with it in that sense. I will say that I am, I must be very sensitive to it because every time I've taken any kind of opiates, um, they prescribed me those Norcos mm. and I got really sick the first time I tried them. Did you? I was, I got very sick and I just threw the bottle away. I was like, I can't take these. Like yeah. I'm going to get sick to my stomach yeah. and I'm not going to, I won't live like that. I'll, I'll just be in pain. I'd rather be in pain than to have this queasy feeling. And so I just got rid of them. Um, but, uh, but our, you know, I, it's funny because like you and I are just two guys, right? you know, and we have stories of it, right? right? We have stories of people who have had to encounter these drugs and we're just two normal guys. We, this, this epidemic so far um, has taken over 400,000 lives. Uh, and it's not the first time in the United States that something like this has happened. Uh, morphine was introduced all, you know, in the Civil War. We listened to a podcast, we would recommend it. Everything that we're gonna, by the way, everything that we talk about today will be on the show notes. We would suggest that you go and listen to some of these podcasts that we listen to. The, yep. There's a Throughline podcast by NPR that is fascinating that talks about morphine, heroin, and OxyContin and the uh, parallels that are between those three drugs. And it talks about their orig the origin of morphine in this country being used during the Civil War. It was called, you know, the soldier's was it the soldier's drug or something like that? Yeah. It was something, it was something like that. Right. And, uh, and it was a huge problem right after the war it was a huge problem. And, and it turns out they've done research to find that it was actually a lot of women were taking morphine instead of the men who, you know, you would think if it was called like the soldier's drug, right. you'd think the men would be, but it was a lot of women were taking in the it. form of laudanum. Yeah. yeah. In the form of laudanum, yeah. it was, it was like very heavily yeah. prescribed. Yeah. Um, it's crazy. Like, like there, there was a moment in history where we we got to have some ignorance around it, right? Yeah. Like a lot of drugs, like sure. a lot of things. We had a moment. We had a time in history where it was like, yeah, we gave it to babies. Yeah, like God, a baby's crying. Yeah, there was, there was, yeah, there was. I'm gonna give the baby some fucking teething stuff or whatever. Yeah, I'm not saying that was a better world. I am saying that that was a better world. I'm saying that was a quieter world. I, that's what I said. Better. <laughs> How's the baby? Sleepy all the time. You know what? It's the fucking 1800s. He doesn't need to know math. It's not. <laughs> it's not just the baby thing. But heroin was introduced by Bayer, and Bayer marketed heroin as a substitute, a non-addictive substitute yeah. for morphine. Yeah. You know, I mean, this was, yeah. and that was the, you know, early start of this sort of pharmaceutical marketing. But, you know, heroin was marketed by Bayer. Yeah. Um, we've never been good with opiates, right? So like, you know, not good with morphine, not good with heroin. And then- uh, well, I, I will say one, one other amusing story. So my, my dad's dad, my grandfather- uh, was a pharmacist, um, you know, back sure. 1,050 years ago. And he was a compounding pharmacist, you know, made his own medicines and all that stuff, um, you know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when he passed, my dad, you know, went and like cleaned up all of his old shit and the pharmacy had long since closed. And my dad found this big thing of heroin that my Holy shit. grandfather had. This is, this is my dad in a fucking nutshell. And I love this. So he's telling me this story. He's like, yeah, and there was this big jar and he like makes his hands like big jar hands, right? Yeah, like yeah. this big jar just marked heroin. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, what'd you do? He's like, oh, I just poured it down the sewer. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> a couple rats just walking around in circles around that shit. And my dad's solution uh, to everything. Oh, gosh. Uh, Motor oil, poured it down the sewer. He poured it down the, the, the yeah. everything. Just yeah. went down the sewer. It's just like what he did. So he finds- Old timey. He found cocaine and he had heroin because they were just yeah, using sh- a variety sure. of medical processes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For old timeyness. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. For old time. <laughs> I've got the old timeys. I've got the old timeys. I would like a prescription yeah. for cocaine. The- uh, the interesting thing, I listened to a couple of other things. And one of the things I was listening to was talking about how these opioids interact with us, right? Yep. And they interact with us and they give us a dopamine hit. And it's this dopamine that makes us feel like, wow, that's, you know, that feels good, right? right. That's, a, that's a good feeling. And an interesting comment from someone, and I want to say it was a radio lab that I had heard on addiction and it was, uh, the interesting comment was the people who are more susceptible to those hits before the invention of those things that they're getting the dopamine hits from, they are actually more suited for survival. They're better suited to seek those things out because the hits naturally come from companionship, physical love emotional love. They come from finding good food that is high in calories. See, this makes sense why those things make you sick. Right? (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting to think that a human being is actually more suited to survival is also more suited to addiction. Yeah. Right? right. They're, They're more susceptible to that dopamine hit and then trying to recreate it, right? That's why they'd be more susceptible because if they found that, you know, jar, that that they figured out that the bees made honey, right? Like your fucking primitive ass brain figured out, <laughs> holy shit, bees make honey, then, you know, you would then seek that out right, again right. and again and again because it would be this crazy dopamine hit that you would find. Same thing would come with, you know, the love you would have for a child so that you would want to rear more children so that you could, you know, yeah. Spread your seed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So, yeah. so, so there's they're more susceptible to it, and that what a tragedy that is. That you know they're being in a, in some ways we've made it easy to punish them. I, I was alluding to this before, like like there was a time and a place where we didn't know some stuff, right? Like I was joking, like oh, we gave it to babies. Like we didn't know like how dangerous these things are, and we're well beyond that. And we'll talk a lot about this this subject, but like we're well beyond being able to plead ignorance. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's kind of astonishing because it's like, we have this, this, this breadth of knowledge about opiates, about their history. We conveniently forget the history, yeah. right? Even though there's, the, the, the parallels are cyclical. Sure. And they'll probably be cyclical again in our lifetime. Yeah, there'll be right. some other. And we don't get to plead ignorance on this one. Like the, the opioid crisis is a manufactured crisis. It's not an accidental crisis. I think that there was probably a time and a place where you could say like, yeah, we, you know, we didn't know how addictive that was. Sure. Oops. You know, we invent, we, we invented heroin as a replacement for morphine. Uh, yeah, turns out that was a bit of a dud. Yeah. I don't think in fucking the two thousands, you get to plead that case anymore. Yeah. yeah. You just don't. And, and like, given how this all plays out, um, it's astonishing that we pretend that this is anything other than a purposeful creation, a manufactured purposeful crisis. And it feels like there's two crises here. There's the people who come to the doctor 
looking to stop pain, right? Yep. Looking to slow pain down. We're going to talk a little bit about pain later, um, about it as a vital sign, also it as a useful tool, right? Um, and uh, they come to try to slow that pain down. They go to the doctor and they say, I want less pain. Right. And there's a movement that talks about, you know, how people shouldn't have to be forced to live in pain. So they they get these drugs approved to be given to people and we start giving them really pure, you know, oxy, oxycodone, which is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a 100% pure covered by a tablet that's supposed to be a time-release tablet. That's what OxyContin is. Um, Oxy is the oxycodone and Contin is short for continuous, continuous dose of Oxy. So they're getting this really powerful drug. And then they start to need this drug because the, the withdrawals on this stuff, the physical withdrawal from this stuff is a horror. If you don't wean yourself off of it, I've heard many stories about people coming, dropping off of it, not being able to get it. And the muscle spasms and the, you know, the nausea and the, like, it's the worst flu you could possibly imagine. That's what it feels like in your body. It just feels like if you can't get this stuff, it feels awful for you. So they're stuck in this rut. So we, the, the prescription has sort of created them, right? right? But then there's another crisis in the sense that we're now flooding the streets with something that people are treating as a recreational drug. Mm -hmm. And then that recreational drug since it's so pure and it's made by a pharmaceutical company, it's so it's such a good hit. It starts to lead people on to heroin because right. it's, and then it starts to lead people from heroin. You know, they get they Not get spiked. Fentanyl. It will get it spiked with fentanyl, yeah. and they just they get killed because yeah. tiny. I mean, it was like a, a rice grain worth of fentanyl can kill you. Yeah. So it's you know like an amazing tiny amount of fentanyl can just murder you. And so they're getting they're 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 getting fentanyl and they're and they're dying from it. So there's really two crises. There's the, the one that's sort of in the doctor's office that spreads, and then there's the one that sort of starts on the street with recreational drugs. And it gets fed by this, this pharmaceutical company's making money both ways. Well, right. You know, I think, I think that's the thing that, that we have to keep in mind is like every pill, doesn't, it does not matter. It doesn't matter if the pill ends up getting resold. The pill at some point was sold from the pharmaceutical company to a distributor, distributor, to a doctor who wrote a prescription, filled at a pharmacy. That's how they make it out into the world. It all it, it only starts in one place. It's not like there's some guy with a grow house of oxycontin yeah, in his right, fucking right, neighborhood. Right. It all starts from a supposedly legitimate place. The problem is the word supposedly. Yeah. Because there's a tremendous amount of illegitimacy that is that the system is rife with. Yeah. And like the amount, just the sheer fucking volume of opiate drugs that are out, just out floating around is fucking insane. It's absolutely insane. Like, I just had a curiosity. Do you have any at your house just like laying around no, from this thing or that them. thing? No, I don't keep them, no. Like, I do what I think a lot of people do. Like, I, I, have, I have had prescriptions for pain and then I don't take them and I don't take very many at all. But I'm, I'm, I always feel like weirdly reluctant to throw them away because like, in my mind, it's like, well, what if something happens, you know? And like, the hilarious part of that is I also think like, well, what if something happens? I shouldn't prescribe drugs to myself. Yeah, and you should just like, go to the doctor and see what I they get say. get a new prescription yeah, if I say. need one, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, but I know, I know that I do what a lot of other people do. Like Absolutely. you hoard. Absolutely. People hoard yeah. these medications. And then these medications, because they're so free, 
like so easy to get, so crazy to get. I do that with um, all over the place. I do that with, so the doctor will write me an Advil prescription. Yeah. It's the, what ibuprofen, yeah. but it's at a 600 milligrams. So it's like taking two Advil and it's cheaper than buying a big bottle of Advil, insurance right? Because your insurance covers yeah. it. So I do have some of those left over from when I've hurt myself. Yeah. And the doctor says, you need to take anti-inflammatories. You can either take Advil or I can write you a prescription. And then they do. They write me a generic prescription for 600 milligrams of ibuprofen and then I take it. Yeah. Um, and uh, and so I do have some of those. Although I was warned off of those recently. Somebody, somebody told me, uh, one of my doctors said, you shouldn't be taking that stuff. You should always try to take the lowest dosage of all medications and to try to stop the pain at the lowest levels possible. You shouldn't just try to drown it out. Lowest effective you dose. You should always go with the lowest effective dose. So if it doesn't, if you take like a 200 milligram, you should be like, okay, well, I can still feel that you know, you up it to three or whatever it is, but you shouldn't be doing the, what I do, which is like, well, let me take two of those fucking things. <laughs> and then I don't have to worry about it. And that's the wrong attitude to have with yeah. medications. That's so funny. Cause that's like, I was just reading not that long about lowest effective dose. I'm like, that makes sense. I've never done I've that. never done that either. Yeah. I've never done it. I'm I've always never, like, yeah, I'll take two Tylenol yeah. when I have a headache. Why period. would I do anything other than maximum strength? What's two, the most yep, I can take? Yep. And I take the this max. This hurts yep. now. I want it to yep, stop. Yep. Give me the most stopping power possible. I want to talk about how these people marketed this drug. So the drug we're talking about, like we said, OxyContin, it's uh, oxycodone covered in a, in a time release uh, coating. Oxy, the reason why we're going to spend, I think, a lot of time on Oxy is because the company, Purdue Pharma, mm. had some really aggressive ways in which they were trying to market this drug. Um so the Food and Drug Administration approved OxyContin in late 1995. Um, I'm quoting directly from one of the articles that we read. The agency permitted Purdue Pharma to make a unique claim for it, that its long-acting formula was, quote, believed to reduce its appeal to drug abusers compared with shorter-acting painkillers like Percocet and Vicodin. So it was, it was marketed to them as a way to say, well, it's going to take a long time, so it's not as useful. But what happened was, almost immediately, people were like, yeah, well, I'll just break the fucking coating off of it and then snort it, and I'll get a huge dopamine hit right. from it. So they didn't, they never used that. Well, and it's, it, it one, one thing that's really clear from reading all these articles is Purdue Pharma, time and time and time again, got away with making claims like, oh, this is good for this. You yeah. can take, it, it is it is believed to be less addictive because of this theory. Yeah. Not because of any set of facts. They they don't, they didn't have any study to back this up. They didn't have, they have, they had nothing. They have nothing. They, they continuously just said shit. Yeah. They just said shit out loud. And for whatever reason, they were believed. Yeah. And they were able to do that with respect to, um, using OxyContin as as something that would be less likely to be abused. They were able to do that in saying like, well, you can uh, escalate the dosage and it would be safe to escalate the dosage to just fucking unbelievable yeah. levels that you could take it for as long as you needed because if you were in pain, you couldn't become addicted to yeah, it. it. Was the, the, that, that was a claim that they made too. They yeah. made a lot of claims about this drug, yeah. none of which were backed by science, none of which had reputable studies that lived behind them. They just said it, man. And it was the FDA and, piece that really was the selling point, right? So yeah. they got the F FDA to say it's believed that because it's time-released, it's not as appealing to drug abusers. 
That piece was a selling point to all the doctors out there. They used that as a, as a rallying cry. They also quoted, you had said earlier, they had quoted a study that was done by like one, it was like a study of one person. It's not like even a study, can't, can't it's not, that yeah, word. Right. But it was like <clears throat> the risk of addiction from nar narcotic painkillers was less than 1% and that the dosages could be increased without limit until the pain was overcome. So less than 1% of a chance, but it was not, that's not the actual numbers. Like yeah. that's not the numbers. They just use those numbers and then they found people who would be the mouthpiece of those numbers and they hired them. Well, nobody fact checks this shit. I don't understand that. Like, like, let's be really clear. Like, this is something I didn't know until we really dug into this. Nobody's fact checking it. The pharmaceutical companies are the gateway for the information about their own drug. They're patented drugs. Yeah. So they create the drug, they test the drug, they market the drug, then they have a team of people that go out and sell these drugs on commission. Yeah. And they just make, they just straight make shit up and yeah. there's nobody checking them. There's nobody checking that work. Once it's FDA approved, it seems to me like they get the FDA approval to make it, to, to push it into the marketplace. And then it seems like they can say whatever the fuck they want to say because there doesn't seem to be any watchdog on yeah. this. And even though we know that they did this, there's there, it's not like the drugs are being pulled off the market. It's not like we we have all this evidence and it's not like anything is happening as a result. The uh, other thing that they were doing too, um, the commissions they were getting were based on how much of the drug they sold. It wasn't that they were, you know, commission-based based on the subscription rate, right? Like, or the prescription rate. They weren't based on that. They were based on how many milligrams they were selling. Yeah. So that's, that's really problematic because now they're coming in and they're saying, you need to go to a higher dose. You need to go to a higher dose. And that opens up that avenue for doctors to believe that company that, oh, it's not going to hurt my patient. If they need more, I'm going to give them more. Yeah. And then it just escalates and escalates and escalates. Think about how fucked up that is that like, see, so it's entirely fucked that the company that stands to gain from selling you the product and that product is going to go in your body and it's going to have, you know, a serious impact on your health and it's meant to... They're this, they're, they have salespeople on commission. Yeah. Just, just, they shouldn't have, it shouldn't even be a thing. Right. You should not have drug companies with reps on the street with a fucking, you know, bag full of samples of fucking bag. opiates knocking on doors. Yeah. Like fucking door to door Bible salesmen. Fucking Cutco. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. You know what? If you prescribe 50 milligrams, I get a bigger commission if you give your patient a higher dosage of yeah. fucking drugs. What am I going to say to make that happen? I've been in sales. Yeah. You're going to say whatever you think. You're going to skirt every fucking line. If you're not a liar, you'll get close. Yeah. How do you, how do they get time with my doctor? That's what I want to know. Cause I sure as fuck can't. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he comes running in the room like it's a race right. for crying out loud. How do you get 30 minutes with this fucking guy? I can't get three. Well, and that's, that. we should talk about that. I know like, because you know, what they do is they get time, they get a little bit of time with the doctors, right? But they get a lot of time with the office staff. Yeah. And doctors are busy, you know, especially sole yeah, practitioners. They feed the office staff. They feed them, they give them little gifts, yep. they give them pens and yeah. giveaways and, you know, oh, bring them lunch and, you know, they're attractive and they've got samples and maybe we took a sample, I don't know. 
And they and they don't have samples of this. They have coupons. They have, it's uh, different. Right. It's different. Yeah. They can't give this. At least from what I read, they can't give this stuff away. But they can give you a coupon for a full thirty day supply. But I know that they used to do samples because yeah. that Atlantic article about that doctor That's that Vicodin. got hooked. Yeah, yeah, he got hooked on samples, and that's a, that's a kind sure. of an opiate. It is, but like, I'm saying Oxy, yeah, they, oxy did, yeah, they, they, they right. specifically didn't yeah. have samples. What they had, at least from what I read, they had these prescription, um, 30-day prescriptions. So they would give the, the doctor a booklet of these. They'd be like, here's a free 30-day prescription to get people on your first one's free, kids. But but what <laughs> they would- It's literally that model. I mean, it really is. But what's hilarious is one doctor, <laughs> I read about one doctor <laughs> he would give people would come in. He was one of those sham doctors that would right. give away like like opium prescriptions. He's a pill mill. He's, yeah, he's a pill mill. <laughs> they would come into his office. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and he would he would give them. He'd be like, "I'll give you this, but I have this side job where I sell long distance service." What? And they would sign up for long distance <laughs> service. <And> so he would, <laughs> So, isn't that amazing? I couldn't believe what? it. What? All right. He's a doctor and he's got a side gig and the side gig is a commission side gig selling long distance service and he would trade it away for OxyContin. No, no, no. Subscriptions. He's got two side gigs. The first is yeah. drug dealer. Yeah, no right? kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> he's, a, he's a doctor who's got yeah. a side gig as a drug dealer who's got oh, a side gig God. as a... Like what? Is he, I could Does he sell it. fucking whole uh, life insurance know, too? Right? What the fuck? I couldn't believe it. What I heard, I was like, "This is the dumbest shit I've ever heard." I want to talk to one of the guys that they that they bring up constantly. He was a spokesperson for Purdue Pharma. His name's Haddix, Doctor Haddix. Oh my god! He said um, when when he was talking to doctors about people getting hooked on the drug, he would say that there is a thing called pseudo addiction. And it's when the body would go through withdrawal, when they would, you know, and, and all that stuff, like when the body would go yeah. through withdrawal, when they would get, you know, they would want more, they'd need more to, to get their fix, et cetera. He's like, that's pseudo addiction. It's not real addiction. And that was the one that was based off the one cancer patient. That's what the, the, that's not a study. It's whatever. Right. It's a, yeah. I'm telling you an anecdote at that point. <laughs> yeah. It's basically an anecdote of yeah. a cancer patient. Right. And so he would, he used that. Now he was a spokesperson for Purdue Pharma. And so he's the one who is talking to, you know, large groups of people. He's given, you know, these talks, he's writing in journals and things like that about this particular thing. And doctors are, you know, they're, they're hearing it and they're saying, oh, well, you know, that makes sense. Okay, right. well, well, I'll just follow that particular bit of... Well, they're the same fucking guys that said that you can't get addicted to it if you're in pain. Yeah, that's what if that... You're, yeah. If you're in pain, yeah. you can't become addicted yeah. to, to to pain medicine. Pain medication. Yeah. But then what they would also say is that um, physical dependence is a feature of all opiates. Well, I'm sorry, but a physical dependence is a feature of an opiate. How is that not... Addiction, but they—they they, I'm physically they, dependent. They, That's not an addiction. They pushed at that though. Yep. I uh, there was several things that I saw and read where they said they would fight that tooth and nail and say no physical, physical, uh, a physical need of this pill, physical need from this is not addiction. And I was like, I don't get it. I don't understand. Right. It. The, the, but they were able to convince me? a lot of people of this. This isn't. A, and you know, like the thing is, is I'm just a dumb asshole, right? I don't know anything from anything. All I know is what a lot of people have reported. So I don't know anything, but it sounds fishy to me. It sounds like it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but you know, maybe they were more convincing when it came to the doctors. I want to also say too, that they also 
um, the pharmaceutical companies created the American Pain Society, or at least partially funded the American Pain Society. And they were the people who pushed for pain as the fifth vital son. So let's let's talk about this. So this is something that like I, I know that I began noticing and feeling weird about. I remember feeling weird about. You go to the doctor now and they 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 take your vitals. There's this four vitals that they that they always used to take. Now they take a fifth vital. Doesn't matter what you go to the doctor for, they're supposed to ask you to rate your pain on this chart, like one through ten. And it's got fucking unhappy faces. I have never done this. You've never, I every I've time. Never the only thing I so my doctor, I come in and what's the four vitals? It's blood pressure. Temperature, temperature, heart rate, heart rate and oxygen. Oh, I was going to say weight. Oh, I thought this oxygen sensor they put oh, on your finger. I, think. I didn't realize. I, did, I, I had think. no idea. I had no idea. So I, all I know is for sure that they're putting a thermometer in my mouth. They're taking my blood pressure and they're counting on my, you know, my pulse. Yeah. So I know for sure those are three things, right? But I'll tell you this. They've asked me, uh, my doctor, the, the, the yeah. hospital that I go to, they always ask about if I'm sad. So mine is based on depression, right? So the, the vital sign that they're looking for, I think, every time I ask is what my happiness level is. Do I feel depressed? It's not happiness. They're, they're looking for sadness. They don't give a fuck if I'm happy. Right. <laughs> they care if I'm sad, right? Neutral, yeah. neutral or above. Neutral That's above is cool. But they're like, have you have you had suicidal thoughts? Are you, are you, you know, are you very sad? They ask you that a lot. They, they ask me going? every time. That's really? what they ask me. I've never once been asked. What's your pain level today? Never a single time is that asked. And so when I'm reading all these articles and I'm hearing fit pain, I'm like, that's never happened to me. Now, it might be that my hospital hasn't adopted that. And I've been going to the same hospital for 20 years. Yeah. So it might be that my hospital hasn't adopted it, but I have never heard that said to me. Not once. Yeah. Unless I come in and say, I'm, I'm hurt. In I'm in right. pain. Then, they, yeah, yeah. then yeah. they ask me. Then right. they gauge it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I get asked all the time. Wow. I get asked all the time. And I will say it, it, it. One of the things that I think is one of the things I think is fucked is like, of course, the company that sells the cure, quote unquote, for pain, is pushing to get pain measured more. Sure, because when you ask people what's your pain level, like people respond with a number, right? Like they're just like, oh, I, I guess I should have pain. Like two, three. Yeah. You know, when you're given. When you're asked a question that is a list of options, you tend to pick an option. You you very infrequently would say, oh, no, no, none, none at all. Yeah, none. And I will say, like, I actually had an appointment yesterday with my surgeon, a follow-up appointment for my back surgery. And they asked me, what's your pain? And I was like, I don't have any pain. I'm, I'm great, you know? And she was, the nurse kind of looked at me like, weird, like, and I was like, isn't that what we're here, like, in that, that's the goal, right? That's why we did this whole thing. Yeah, you shouldn't know? you be high-fiving me right now? Yeah. Well, my guess is that people feel compelled to answer, uh, you know, one or two. Yeah. You know, fair to middling, sure. you know, that kind of thing. Sure, sure. You know, and it, as you do that, it's just going to push more and more people reporting pain. It, yeah. Ask and you'll get an answer. Purdue Pharma also partnered with another company and they used this system. And it was, uh, I'm going to read directly from an article. In its approach to sales, Macy shows Purdue was scientific. Using information purchased from a data mining firm, the company determined which physicians were prescribing the most of their competitors' painkillers <laughs> and dispatched sales reps to their, to their practices. The more likely a doctor was to prescribe, the more often the reps darkened his door. The reps were highly motivated. Their bonuses were, were pegged with the milligrams of OxyContin 
as the uh, that a doctor prescribed. So they and they uh, I found out also that they had that their company had a share in this sort of market research company that just collected the data on what doctors were prescribing so that they could focus and target better these doctors that were prescribing painkillers and so they could go out and sell their painkiller a much more potent painkiller to to the to this to us yeah. yeah and and like that means that the care that you're getting as a patient like let's just be very clear the care that you're getting as a patient is not evidence based at that point right because if a doctor is being swayed by a sales rep rather than by a study rather than by the evidence if 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 the reason i'm switching from painkiller a to painkiller b is because that rep keeps coming in and buying my office lunch and my staff really likes that person and you know i i just want to do something nice because the rule of reciprocity you know that means that we're not talking about an evidence based medical system it means that you as a patient are getting care that's based on the high pressure sales tactics of a fucking right. door to door amway salesman yeah. that has fucking heroin in his pocket. Right. <laughs> that's a true thing. Yeah, yeah. That's just a fucking true yeah. thing now. Yeah. That's fucking crazy to think about. And the doctors that like the 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 doctors that are prescribing all of these medications, like you better believe they're getting something out of it. Yeah. Like they're getting they're getting asked to go and like speak at this conference. Oh, you know what? You you and your patients have such great success you know, managing this kind of pain in your practice. Why don't you come speak at this conference for us? Oh, it happens to be in Bermuda. That's a that's a thing. These all expense paid junkets where it's like, we'd love for you to be, you know, in on this, this association or this pain society or whatever and be a speaker. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, you wanna wanna do that? That's that's yeah, fine. Yeah. Let's do that. Doctors and these people who are working for, I don't want to paint them as all people who are like pushers trying to get you hooked, right? Because I think that there is something to be said about their intentions, right? We One, we don't know what their intentions are. Mm -hmm. You can't guess. You can only guess based on evidence that you have. So you can't tell, I can't tell you what they were thinking. But a lot of these people seem to be thinking that they're doing a, a good by taking people's pain away. I was, there was a, a one, one podcast we listened to, the New Yorker Radio Hour podcast we listened to. Um, there's a sales rep, an old sales yeah. rep, who's telling the people who he's talking to, the interviewer, that he thought he was doing something good. Yeah. He didn't think he was doing something wrong. He wasn't out there trying to hurt people. You know, he wasn't trying to make it so people would have more, right. more oxy. What he wanted was them to not have pain. And so I don't want to paint everybody as like, oh my gosh, they're trying to push all this stuff, but they are trying to sell something. That's a true statement. Yeah, so let me let me kind of scale it back a little bit in the sense that I don't know that I would say that the individual sales rep yeah. is problematic. I would say that my view is that creating an incentive system from the top yeah. that says, hey, I'm going to incentivize you on the dosage yeah. and I'm going to incentivize you. Like we're, we're talking about a system, whether it's whether it's ethical or unethical, at the very best, the most generous thing you could say is it's not evidence-based. Yeah. That's the most generous thing that you can say is that if if I am a doctor and I'm, I'm prescribing a certain medication because of uh, the tactics of a salesperson and I'm switching from one prescription to another because the sales guy is more, you know, persuasive. Sure. That has nothing to do with like, 
well, it's it's more efficacious. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because that would be the most easy sales. My drug's more efficacious. Look at this study. It's, Here's a study you know, tells you. Oh, yeah. that's more efficacious. Yeah. Cool. I'm going to use that one. And that's it. You don't ever have to come here again. Yeah. yeah. Every time somebody needs it, yeah. I'll just prescribe it. Why would you why would you ever come back and talk to me again? Sure. Well, the, the reason they want to come back and talk to you again is because they want to stay on your fucking radar like any salesperson. Like, yeah. I like it's just it's just part of the game. Sure. Incentivizing from the top these kinds of tactics, at the most generous thing you can say about that is that it creates a situation where patients are getting care that is not evidence-based. And like that's hugely problematic. Other problematic things um, were some of the things that they knew, right? So that they found out about this drug and then they didn't disclose it, right? Yeah. So one of the things that we've got to recognize is that Purdue Pharma is not a publicly traded company. So some of the checks and balances that might be involved in other companies, right? Where, you know, people can see your profits, people see, you know, other sort of yeah. inner workings when you have a board that's, you know, yeah. profit. They poke their yeah, head yeah, in, yeah. yeah. This, this doesn't happen in a company that's privately owned. And so they had some protections when it comes to this stuff. Now, some of this stuff has come out because of whistleblowers and other people that have released memos and whatnot, and they're finding things out about Purdue Pharma now, and they're starting to prosecute some of these people because they found wrongdoing, things that they knew and they were still trying to push this drug. Specifically, company executives knew three years prior uh, to testimony and they covered up their knowledge. So three years before they knew about stuff and this stuff has come out that they've, mm -hmm. there's been memos that have come out. Um, one of the things that they knew for sure was that the time release portion of it was useless, right? So I don't know how they didn't know this, right? I don't know how that this did, this got past them. I, I can't imagine that they didn't know this at the outset, but they at least knew it several years in advance that before it really started yeah, hitting right. was that, this time release is a portion of the outside of the pill. And when you crush the pill, that time release portion is doesn't no, do it doesn't thing. do anything. Yeah. Now you can snort it or you can melt it down and shoot it or whatever you got to do. Or you can even just put it in your mouth then probably. Right. And you'd be okay because it's going to, it's going to release it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that time release coding that was on that pill didn't do what, what they thought yeah. it was going to do. You've gotten to the center you, of the Tootsie yeah, exactly, Pop real yeah. fast. Yeah, it was one. I skipped two, three. Two, three, <laughs> and you got in there. It's, it seems like, and the circumstantial evidence leads to me to believe that they were just okay with the, because they tried, they, they hid yeah. this for a while. They hid this idea that, they, that this coding did nothing. It makes, it leads me to believe that they, they just wanted to sell the pill, man. And I I appreciate, I want to say, like, I appreciate your abundance of caution. I will throw that to the wind. Yeah. Because for my end, like, we know some shit called Purdue Pharma knew. They knew that these drugs were creating addiction problems. They knew when they, well, you know when you make up a lie. They they knew, they, they said shit that they knew demonstrably was untrue and they continued to defend it years after they knew these things were untrue. It like, they don't have credibility. The, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. Like, because I, I know for a certain fact that they are willing to make up facts yeah. to persuade people to use their drugs. That's not a question. That's a true thing. We know is one. We, we know that they're willing to suppress knowledge about the danger of this drug until they get caught sometimes for years. I, there's one part where the Sackler family, the guy, the, the, Mr. Sackler wrote in an email 
We have to hammer on abusers in every way possible. They are the culprits and the problem. They are reckless criminals. And so he wanted to push the blame on people yeah. that were abusing it. Right, because if it becomes a problem of just a bunch of people using it, you know, recreationally yeah. as a street drug, then he doesn't have to deal with the first problem that you laid out, which is that it is dangerous for patients to take. Yeah. It is overprescribed. It's grossly overprescribed. The way that it's prescribed, we know leads to addiction. It's not something we have to speculate about. We know that it leads to tremendous addiction. And we know that like taking it not only is just addictive, but it's dangerous. Like people overdose and they fucking die on this shit. Like the, the amount of deaths in the hospital, there was a study about the number of deaths in hospital related to opiates. And like in a relatively short period of time, went from like 0.7% to like 3.6%. Yeah. It means it, it fucking quint, quintupled. Yeah. With, and, and it was a relatively short, I forget the, the time, so it was a relatively short period of time. Like, we know it's dangerous, and they told everybody it's not dangerous. Yeah. It's not like they, they didn't even like say, oh, well, we're just not going to comment on the danger of it. They marketed it as less dangerous. So I think it's entirely yeah. fair for you to be like, yeah, all the evidence leads to me thinking like, if you didn't know better, you fucking should have. You fucking should have figured it out, yeah. And that's the most generous thing you can say. That is, is you fucking, fucking should have. Yeah, I I heard that it was the it was that over that opioids now are the leading cause of death for people under fifty. That's um, fucking insane. Isn't that crazy? Um, that uh, one of the books I read started out with the the fact that something like a large city, we're talking about seventy five thousand people a year die a whole lot just imagine a whole just large gone. city just gone and that's you know that's a pretty sizable town you know there's several large cities that you could say that city would just be wiped off the map well and, and so that's in one year that we've lost thousands tens of hundreds of thousands of lives to this and like it's you know i want to i want to talk a little bit about we talk about this when we talk about the measles or we talk about other things where if you only count fatalities as the cost you miss a lot of what yeah, happens. Right, right. right. Oh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a that's great way a to- That's a huge yeah. cost in terms of lives. But sure. like, in terms of the damage that this shit does, it's way bigger than that. You know, yeah. there's the, there was a, a Guardian article, you know, where people were saying they were describing like their spouses as, as missing pieces, their children as being, you know, sullen and disinterested in the world. They're talking about, there's a story in The Atlantic about a doctor- who, I mean, he became addicted to opiates. He lost his practice. He lost everything. He was delivering fucking pizzas at the end, at of, the that end of that article. Yeah. And 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 working in a shelter. Like that guy lost everything. He wouldn't count as one of those statistics. None of those no. people. He didn't die. You're you know? Right. So if we only look at the cost in terms of deaths, yeah. we aren't seeing the total impact. Yeah. It fucks people up and it ruins people's lives that don't die from it. Yeah. There's a guy, I was watching a, a documentary. There's a a PBS documentary, it might've been a Nova or a Frontline yeah. or something. And this guy, this poor guy, he gets his leg cut off in the mine. He's working in a coal mine in- Jesus! In, he gets his leg cut off, but he goes back to work because he doesn't want to lose his job. And so he's got a prosthetic because he, he lost the lower part of his, like his calf down, it looks like. So he has to go back to work because disability won't support his family. So he has to go back to work. He goes back in. And as he goes back in, he's got to start taking these pain pills to get by through yeah. the day. And then one day he doesn't have his pain pills and he's racked 
absolutely racked in pain, can't get out of bed. At a certain point, he was saying that he had run up his credit card bills up $30,000 just buying pain pills. His wife leaves him. You know what I mean? Like it's- yeah. And it's, he wouldn't count as yeah, one of those statistics. It's the worst country song you've ever heard in your entire <laughs> life. But this guy, this poor guy loses his leg and then he's just trying to work. And he, you know, just to get by throughout the day, he's got to take these opioids because we don't, we don't take care of people that are disabled, I guess, in this country. is a, We're a bunch of fucking monsters well, in this okay, country. Well, okay, to be fair, he's probably just one of those lazy yeah. welfare slobs. Unreal. Oh, look at me. I Unreal. lost my leg, and Ugh. now I don't want to go to work Ooh, in a coal mine. here and pop pills all day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, but what I, you Lay around, fucking eat my government uh, cheese, I you lazy fuck. Couldn't believe it. And that's like just one story. Like, there's Walk so many. <laughs> <laughs> Rub some coal in it. <laughs> This is one story, man. There's yeah. a whole bunch of these stories. And yeah. there's a whole bunch of stories of people who, you know, had opiates, used the opiates, you know, lost a lot of their life. Right. Their life changed very drastically because of this. Um, this, this is not a, it's not, you're right. It's it, If you just look at deaths, you're not paying attention to the whole picture. And the deaths are awful enough. Yeah, the deaths, yeah, yes. right. That's the other thing. Yeah. It's like, it's not like the measles. Like you look at the deaths and be like, ah, oh, it's not. That man, it's like, this is a lot. It's a whole lot. Yeah, yeah. You look at like something like 9-11, right? And we're, oh my God, we got to do something. 3,000 people. 75,000 people. Yeah. 400,000 since it started, right? Yeah. You're just like, oh my right. gosh, the amount of people that are dying. And it's it's ballooned and sort of worked its way up. Um, you know, one of the things that they did when they, you know, we talk about, you know, the, the way they're culpable, what they did to cover it up. They picked up references to abuse of opioid products on the internet. So they would, they would troll these places on the internet to find where people were talking about their product. They knew that people were talking about how great their product was to get high on, to right. use as a recreational drug, which is illegal, right? It's not that I'm, and, and I don't want people to, 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 to think that I'm against using something recreationally. Like, I don't think that there's anything wrong personally with you, I think you should be pay attention, especially if you're using a very powerful opioid, opiate like OxyContin. That's a, I would be very careful with that as a recreational drug. Yeah. Right. Um, it's, it's highly addictive. It's, um, it's, you know, it's been proven to be highly addictive over and over and over again. It's super dangerous. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's one of those, it's one of those drugs I certainly wouldn't take <laughs> if it was offered to me, but I, you know, I, I'm not going to poo poo what somebody wants to do with their own time. You do what you got to do. You know, I'm not a guy who's a, who's, you know, anti-drug. Um, I'm not a guy who's anti-altered state. Like you right. do what you got to do. But that this is, they should be following rules, right? They're said, they're selling a product that they're saying, this is for people in pain. This is for people who are looking for a way to slow that pain down, to not deal with that pain. There should be something there that makes them, stop and say, oh my gosh, because if they, if you know it's being used like this, if you know it's being talked about on the internet like this, well in advance of any, you know, major, major, major problems with people becoming addicted to it, ethically, it's your, it's your duty to do something about it. Well, at some point, they, at some point, there is no way for them to bury their head in the sand and claim that they didn't have knowledge, that they are producing vastly more producing and selling vastly more of these fucking drugs than could possibly have any therapeutic benefit, which means that the, the only conclusion is that 
outside of therapeutic benefit, we know that these drugs are somehow making their way into a secondary market. Yeah. There's there's no way with the with the the quantity of pills when they when you look at the the number of of these pills that are being sold and produced and sold, it defies imagination. It's in the billions. Yeah. It's a crazy, wild, insane amount. There's no reasonable person that could look at the sheer volume of these pills produced and say, well, yeah, I mean, like, it's probably true that, like, you know, one out of 10 people needs a prescription for Oxycontin. Yeah. Because that's, that's, like, what it would boil down to. It's, like, one out of 20, right? Yeah. Like, needs a fucking prescription for fucking Oxycontin at any given moment. Yeah. That's insane. So you have to know. You can't pretend you don't know yeah. that you're producing a trillion pills or whatever the number is. Oh, but, you know, we don't want anyone to abuse them. Yeah, you don't give a fuck. What you want to do is sell a trillion pills. Yeah. I uh, uh, There's another part, too. It says, uh, this is from another article. It says, new civil suits from the attorneys general in New York, Vermont, and Washington State accused distributors. Now, this is yeah. something else we were talking about before we started recording the distributors of brazenly devising systems to evade regulators. Yeah. They allege that the companies warned many pharmacies at risk of being reported to the DEA helped others to increase and circumvent limits on how many opioids were allowed they were allowed to buy and often gave advance notice on the rare occasions they performed audits. That's now going not just for the Purdue Pharma. That's the distributors yeah. trying to, again, sell this drug and warning people off trying to tip them off when there's going to be some sort of reckoning. There were stories from that distributors article. There were stories of like these little like two light stop towns in like West Virginia that were getting, you know, they had a population of like a couple thousand people and they were getting shipments of these fucking pills that exceeded their population. Yeah. Like that exceed, like vastly by, by tenfold. So like people, everybody in town would have to be getting a hundred pills a month in one of these towns. And, and like, there's no way both the distributor and Purdue Pharma don't, you can't claim ignorance. You don't get to claim that when these numbers get this big, because that's your bottom line. If you sell something, one thing you know is how much of the thing you sell. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. how much of the thing you made, how much of the thing you just sold you don't get to pretend that you didn't. And you don't get to pretend that you shipped, you know, 40,000 fucking Oxycontin to a, you know, podunk West Virginia with a population of 3,000 when you're the one warning them, hey, that number's, you know, a little too high. That hits the red line. Why don't you scale it back to 38.5, yeah. right? Yeah. That's like telling your buddy, hey, man, deposit $9,900 in the bank. You don't have to fill out that $10,000 form, right? Yeah. When you know some shit is shady. Yeah. They know this shit is shady. They know this isn't going to people that are just like, I got a backache. Yeah. You know this is, you, you, you know that you're creating a crisis. You know it. And they continue to do it because the money is so big. The money's so big that one of those distributors is like the, the biggest pharmaceutical distributor that distributes OxyContin is one of the top 15 highest grossing revenue companies in America. They got hit with like a $60 million fine and they just shrug that shit off because they have revenues in the billions of dollars. Yeah. It's, it's it's a drop in the fucking bucket. They're like, it's, it's a, cost a cost of doing, doing business. business. Yeah. It's, it's it's like the old EPA people when they yeah. would when they would dump a bunch of stuff and instead of remediating all that garbage that they were sending right. into a river, if it only if it costs us seventy thousand dollars to remediate it or 
$10,000 fine. I'm going to take the $10,000 fine and you deal with my garbage yourself. It's the Pinto equation. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's the Pinto equation. Pinto equation from Fight Club. Yeah. Yeah. Right. One of the things I want to talk about is the Sacklers a little because the Sacklers own Purdue Pharma. Purdue Pharma is the maker of OxyContin. The Sacklers, um, the older Sackler, Arthur Sackler was the one, he's passed away now, but he was uh, the guy who basically, you know, they, they said that he really revitalized some pharmaceutical marketing. Mm-hmm. He bought a marketing company early on and uh, and he used marketing tactics to sell these drugs and his family became very wealthy off of this. And one of the things that, the, one of the pushback pieces of this is that, you know, while they might have to pay some fines and I think there was something to that effect, none of them have gone to jail, right? Mm-hmm. But there has been returning, not returning of their money, but certainly refusing of more money. The Guggenheim, they were huge. These people are huge philanthropists. They give money to the arts, to, to the arts all schools, over, yeah. medical schools. And people are taking their names down and also just not accepting any more money from those A families. million dollar donation was turned down. Yeah. And like the, the commentary is like, how bad do you have to be that somebody doesn't want your million dollars? Yep. Yeah. You, you live and die on donations. Yeah. You're like, no, man, that's dirt. Because that's the thing, it's dirty money. Yeah. It's dirty money. And like, there's no way to pretend it's not dirty money. And they even there was even like an article that was talking about Arthur Sackler himself saying like, oh, you know, he didn't know, he didn't know. Yeah, because he His got out of clean. it. He got out of it early or whatever because he died early. No, and then they find information afterwards. Like, no, he knew. Yeah, like he knew. The yeah. family knew. They were in bed with the whole thing. Yeah, and the, and they 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 play this game where they pretend to be disassociated with the everyday when in fact they were micromanagers of the entire incentive yeah, program. that's the thing, yeah. That pushed those drugs yeah. out into the market yeah. and had those guys, yep. Amway, got drugs, you know, knocking on fucking doors. Yeah. I, I got to say, there's a really powerful piece and I think it's in the daily podcast um, that's in our notes, in the show notes for this episode. Um, that, the Guggenheim protest that they did They go into the Guggenheim. The Guggenheim, I guess they gave a bunch of money to the Guggenheim. They staged this timed protest where all these people are in the Guggenheim on a free night. And they're all all up the staircase or whatever. And they did this thing where they start shouting, you know, about, you know, they're, they're doing a chant. And as they're doing a chant, they release prescriptions with people's names on them that have died. So prescription pads with people's names on them who've died from the opioid crisis and they release it in the Guggenheim. And I was like, that is an artistic, a very artistic, very well thought out protest. And I thought that was really something. But there's been a lot of pushback to this. There's also been some people who have gone to jail. Um, Well, they've gotten felony charges. I don't know that they've gone to jail. I want to read part of this. It says in 2007... Purdue Pharma pleaded guilty to a felony charge of misbranding OxyContin while marketing the drug by mis, by misrepresenting, among other things, its risk of addiction and potential to be abused. Three executives, the company's chief executive, Michael Friedman, its top medical officer, Dr. Paul Goldenheim, and Mr. Udell, who died in 2003, each pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor misbranding charge that solely held them liable as Purdue Pharma's responsible executives and did not accuse them of any wrongdoing. The company and the executives paid a combined $634 million in fines 
and the men were required to perform community service. So that's the damage that yeah, the they company received. wrote a fucking check. Yep, a billion billion dollar company. Yeah, wrote a wrote check a big check, yeah. but it's still a check. Yeah, but it's a check that doesn't it ultimately doesn't hurt them. They're still around. They're they still, still in exist. business, it right? Did. They didn't have yeah. to. They didn't have to sell the furniture. Yeah, right. Yeah, nobody went to jail. And like that's the thing. It's like we're in the middle. Like I, I was. I, I we read article after article after article, Cecil, and I'm like. And it's still the only game in town. Yeah. It's still the only game in town. Like we we have we have this crisis going on and there doesn't seem to be effective enforcement whatsoever. There was an article that we read that like one of the one of the enforcement officials, a DEA enforcement official was hooked on fentanyl lollipops. Do you remember reading that article? Yeah. He's like leaving the fucking rappers for his fentanyl lollipops around the office. It's it's like it's got tentacles everywhere. The, the these drugs are so dangerous. They're crazy, crazy, wildly dangerous. And we have a system that makes it because you know, be, partially is because of the culture that the drug companies have created. To go back to a, a point before, where we have an anti-pain culture, and I don't know that we always had an anti-pain culture, but we have a culture. One of the articles that we, we were listening to was talking about how. Old guard nurses. Yeah, difference between the nurses. Yeah. Old guard nurses would be like, yeah, I mean, sometimes shit just hurts. You know, you had, you had a big surgery. Sometimes shit just hurts. And the new guard nurses who have been taught a culture around pain that, yeah. oh my God, we can't have anybody in pain. Yeah, Nobody should be in pain. We got to treat pain. Pain is a, is a pain epidemic in America. There's a pain epidemic going on. The pain epidemic is a term and a movement which was funded by Purdue Pharma. Sure. They created organizations to sell this idea, to sell this narrative that America is in the midst of a pain epidemic. Why? Because they sell pain pills. Then they were the ones that like wrote the book about, like literally wrote a book that they distributed for free as an educational guide as the American Pain Management Society. Oh, don't worry, we'll, we'll underwrite making this book and distributing this book on how to treat and manage pain. And then we'll make pain the fifth vital sign. We'll create an entire culture around destroying pain about, we'll tell you that it's a problem. We'll tell you that it's a crisis. We'll tell you that you should have a zero tolerance for pain. Incidentally, we happen to sell fucking pain. We pills. sell a thing that slows that slows your brain from, and it really doesn't even replace the pain. You know, it, it just makes it dissociative, but it's, it's, it's those practices, right? It's those practices when you see that their hands are in the creation of this idea that really makes it feel like there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that makes me believe that this company, you know, th th this company should be punished more. That's the main thing that I think I'm coming back to is that there needs to be more punishment for these people. One of the things that they're talking about, uh, uh, President Trump is talking about, he's talking about this opioid epidemic. But when he's talking about it, he's talking about death sentence for drug dealers. Did you hear this? Yeah. Death what? sentence for drug dealers. That's not death the problem. Sentence. You know, they're talking about punishing the doctors. They're talking about punishing, you know, but there's never any mention of punishing these executives. Or the distributors. Or the distributors, right? There's some people that are, and I always wondered this too. There's, you know, plenty of, plenty of uh, these, uh, when there's a, a, a suit against a, a company. Mm -hmm. um, we're talking about, uh, there's a lot of parallels in some of these articles to 
um, the cigarette industry, right? There's a lot of parallels because the cigarette industry was secretive. They denied the fact that cigarettes were addictive. They were even to, even to Congress, and yeah. then they, you know, they shredded a bunch of documents, et cetera. But they got those whistleblower that 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 called them out, sent out some memos, yeah. really changed the face of how we dealt with um, the cigarette industry. But after that happened, some co- some states sued these companies, right? And so they sue these companies for damages. And that that is that is starting to happen now in some of these some of these states, right? We're seeing yeah. some of these attorneys general are bringing suits against them, but these are all I think fine suits, right? Because cigarette companies still exist, right? They'd have to sell the fucking furniture, like we said earlier. Yeah. They still are around because they have an addictive product, right? Yeah, like that, like like that's where they. That's the other thing that they have in common, right? Yeah. Is that they they have a market which once they have created that market, the market self-perpetuates. And then like somebody's got to feed the machine now, Yeah. right? And they literally have a patent on the problems, on the solution to the problem. They have a literal, actual patent on it, Cecil. Yeah. Unlike cigarettes, right? Which like lots of people can make cigarettes. So if like, if RJ Reynolds was lying, but fucking the other guys, I don't know, another say Robert Morris, whatever, wasn't, yeah. Like if they find R.J. Reynolds out of business, or you know somebody else picks up the mantle, they these people need to go to prison, and we're seeing the first spate of uh, amongst the distributors. We're seeing the first spate of criminal prosecutions, not just civil suits, but criminal prosecutions, because the um, like it goes beyond negligence. Like it's to the point of saying like, yeah, I put. I put dollars in front of the truth and I lied. I expressly lied and I hid this shit from regulation. And there's, there's, I think the only thing that changes this is criminal penalties. Human beings, actual people have to go to jail for a super long time at the very top so that they say like, okay, well, we got to make, we got to make the number of pills we push into the market make sense. Yeah. Because it doesn't make sense that you could stem this tide from the top. You can't stem it from the bottom. The bottom is the guys on the street yeah. reselling. By the time you sell it on the street, how many hands has it had to go through? Yeah. It's, it, it has to have passed through, at the very least, Purdue Pharma to a distributor, a distributor to a pharmacy, a pharmacy to you, to a person, yeah. a person to a second person, right? Yeah. So if I'm getting to recreational, it's got to go five. Yeah, it's five degrees of Five Kevin degrees, Bacon. right? Yeah. Well, the, the place to solve it isn't at the bottom of that funnel. Yeah. The place to solve it is at the top, but there's no incentive because all they have to do is write it. They write a little check and then next week they get a bigger, bigger check. check. It doesn't matter. What the fuck do I care? It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. If there's incentive in the sense that, you know, I could go to jail for this. That's a big deal. Right. When you watch your buddy that like is in the fucking next shiny office over getting led away yeah. in handcuffs gets and he's thrown down on his fur carpet. Right. Get thrown fucking in handcuffs. And that fucker's going to die in jail now. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, we're going to start putting together some systems to make sure that I make exactly the number of pills that make sense. And these people created political, you know, capital by, by contributing to political funds. I yeah. mean, there's, Huge. you know, they do it. They, they contribute to political funds. They were talking about in one company was uh, fighting against, there was a congressional hearing on opioids and one Democrat was railing against, not against the company, but against the idea that this was happening, right? Well, then they showed later on, he got 10 times more of a contribution than anybody else, oh, yep. right? Because, you know, there's a, there's a, right. 
there's an incentive there. It's the same incentive. It's a very similar incentive to what we were talking about earlier when you're talking about, you know, you brought my staff lunch, you take me to right. a, on a Bahamas tour or whatever. And then suddenly I feel that that need to reciprocate. And I think the same thing here. It's this, you know, this, this political group is just funneling money to them and being like, hey, you know, you need to be pushed back on this stuff because it's not a bad thing. You know, even, it, and I will say, you know, the politicians may think they're doing the right thing because they're getting this information, but these people have shown themselves to be bad information brokers, right? They give false information. They've been shown to do it time and time and time again. Then they've been shown to do it to sell profit, to make yep, profit, right. to, to sell pills. Like what, what blows my mind is like, for an individual, once, once you find out that somebody is willing to lie big for their own gain. If you found this out about a person you knew, yeah. you'd be like, that is an untrustworthy person. And then, at least in my mind, then you're like, that is an untrustworthy person. Like nothing I nothing they say means anything anymore. Sure. Like all that goes into the bucket of you, you lied big for your own gain. Right. I can't, I can't trust you anymore. You live in a different sure. bucket. Sure. Crazily. For these major corporations, it's like we know that they lied and then we let them promise to do better. It's like, like how many more times are we going to let them hit us? You know what I mean? Like this feels like, like I, I yeah. feel like I'm just like flinching all the time. Yeah. Like, ah! <laughs> like really? Like where well, this is like the solution. Like, I, all right, I'll write you a check and yeah. I'll promise to do better. No, you, you lost the benefit of the doubt. You also never get it back. Yeah. You never, it's too important. 400,000 people are dead. You never get the benefit of the doubt back. Now regulators live in your house. Yeah. You're the only one that makes it. You have the literal patent on it. It's only you. You only got to go to one company to fix this. So I was watching an interesting, um, I think it was a PBS special that I was watching on it. And a really moving piece on some of the victims of this one interesting thing that they're doing in Vancouver that they've installed that they won't do here, won't happen in the United States, but they have it in Vancouver and I think they have it in Canada and different places. It took them a while to get it instituted, but they finally have it. And it's a place to go shoot up supervised. They're not going to give you the drugs. They're not going to do anything like that. But oh they, yeah, I read about that. They'll this. give yeah. you clean needles. Yeah. They're standing on, on ready to, they're going to give you all the types of things you need to make sure that you can, you know, Shoot up safely. Shoot it up safely. And then, you know, like all the antiseptic, all that stuff, it's all just there waiting for you to use. You have a little booth that you can use it in. You have someone there to talk to, right? So one of the things, one of the benefits of it is someone shooting up. Well, there's a human being across from you if you need to ask for help, right? The, we have bad ways of getting off these opiates. Like the, yeah. on, the only ways we know right now of how to get off these opiates, the, most of the ways are the... 12 step process or, or variations, which are really, really inefficient. Yeah. Um, 6%, I think is what they say is the, is the rate. That sounds bad for the other yeah, 94%. The, yeah. So it's, there's a lot of relapses, it turns out, but, um, but you get a chance to talk to a human being. They have Narcan on site. So if somebody does have a, a, a bad dose and with some fentanyl in it, they can get this shot up. They said that the amount of people that died from this, has changed dramatically because they're not doing it on the street corner. They're not doing it behind a building. They're doing it with a clean needle. They're doing it under supervision. They're doing it in a place where they can um, make sure that somebody, if they're going into complications, is there for them. It's really changed the face 
in Vancouver specifically of how this is done there. And I really wish it was something that we instituted here. One thing that occurs to me is one of the reasons we would never do that here is because in the States, we think that if you're a drug dealer, you deserve it. Yeah. And if bad shit happens to you yeah. because you, and we're so hypocritical about it because if you ask people about their drug use at some point in their life, almost everyone's got a story, sure. right? So we're just, we're all liars about that. Not, I mean, like culturally speaking, right? Not individually. Like culturally speaking, like I know that like there'd be people who'd be like, well, fucking they're vermin anyway. Let them, let them execute themselves, yeah, let them die. right? Let them die. Like we, we don't look at it in the sense that like, that, that addiction is a problem we can address and yeah. we can reclaim people from addiction. Like we, we also don't look at addiction as a problem that can be, if not eliminated, managed in a way that people can still be productive. Sure. Because that's a true thing too. Yeah. Like it's, it, we look at it as this weird zero sum game where it is somehow immoral to get fucked up if it's heroin and it's totally fine if it's, you know, beer. So, you know, like we have, we're, we're weirdly moralistic about the ways and the, the preferences sure. people sure. have around getting fucked up. Yeah. And then like, we have this, this idea that like, if it goes bad for you, it's your fault. Yeah. And you had it coming. And we also have this idea that like, it's an all or nothing. You do heroin, you're a piece of shit. You can't possibly go to work. Yeah. Except for the people do. Yeah. You know, there's plenty of people that are addicted to what we would consider hard drugs or take hard drugs and go to work and have families. And like, I listened to an NPR story about a guy that overdosed and he was a regular guy. Like he got up in the morning and he got showered and he shot up some heroin and then he had a cup of coffee and he went to work and he worked a full-time job and he came home and his wife loved him, except for that he had this problem with heroin, you know, and then he eventually, he ended up overdosing and it was super fucking sad. He's not some fucking, you know, vagrant living on the street corner. The only picture we paint is a dishonest picture. Like we paint and it's, it fucks us up yeah. and we can't solve the problem because we refuse to recognize what the problem is yeah. and what it looks like and who the face of it is. And we don't have any good systems to deal with it. I was listening to a, a podcast, a radio lab podcast about, um, is there a drug, some kind of drug out there? You, you hear some of these people talk about, um, some hallucinogen, hallucinogens, if they take it, they can get off of oh, a yeah, different drug. It, right? Breaks the cycle of yeah. the drug. And then there's a couple of these other drugs. There was a guy who wrote a, um, a book about how he was an alcoholic and he took this muscle relaxer and it just made him not want to have that ever again. And, uh, and never, never have alcohol again, right? Yeah. So he took this drug and it immediately broke him of that thing. And then there's, you know, we're talking about the Narcan. We're talking about all this other stuff that counteracts these types of drugs. Um, we, we treat them, there's, there's, you know, there, I know that there are people who think that, you know, that might be a, a path to go, but the way in which we treat it is that, you know, you got to have a deity thing that they do at the 12 step thing. Yeah. You got to like, and you know, it's funny because again, in a couple of these things where they're showing people who have sort of recovered, you know, they're showing them on the, on the, on the couch and they're reading a Bible because that's what, you know, yeah, that's right. the thing that's that how, that's how, that's how recovery works in this country. Yeah. That's how it works. We don't do anything else. I know that for a while they were doing a methadone. I don't, I'm sure they still do it. And actually, to be honest, I, I one of those people, um, in one of the things was actually hooked on the methadone because yeah. the methadone is a, is a way to get them off a of heroin. That's not as, I guess, a big a hit, but it's still 
doesn't make him so that they have the cravings for heroin. Right. Um, but it still is a drug. It's still the same, you know, types of thing. It's still a drug. Um, and this one woman, uh, she wound up being in debt to the methadone clinic. She Ugh. was in debt to them. It's not that we just provide someone methadone right. to get off of right. it. I never thought about that. We, they have to pay for it. And she ran up a bunch of credit card debt. She couldn't pay for it. She couldn't pay to get the thing that she needed to right. get off of these drugs. So we treat these people. One, we treat addicts in this country in a way that is horrid, yep. right? We treat them horribly. Like you said, all addicts are the bottom of the gutter when it comes to addicts. And I got to say, I am, I am soured because I grew up around an addict. My father was an addict. And so I am soured towards addicts. I know I am. I try not to be, right? I try to think about people as, you know, individuals and, you know, it, it, it's a problem, but you need, you know, that you maybe want to address or whatever, but, you know, you don't want to, I don't want to immediately throw you out. But it's hard because, you know, when you grow up with an addict, you know what happens. You know yeah. what they'll do. You know what they'll do to get what they what they want. And so, um, so you, you know, it's hard not to be cautious around that. And you see constantly the people who let addicts into their lives. There's, there's a lot of stories, yeah. a lot of stories about the consequences of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, but we never do anything collectively in this country to try to stem that tide and change that. Instead, right. what we're going to, what we're talking about in this country is like, we want to put people to death that deal drugs instead of saying, Hey, maybe we should deal with the problem. If there's no users, then there won't be any drug problem. Right. Well, maybe we should start with Purdue Pharma if yeah. we're going to start you know, st people. start at the top and start at the bottom, yeah. right? Take care of the people at the bottom, start at the top, start talk, start taking those people. And like you said, putting them in jail. If you take away the top and the bottom, there's nothing the left in the middle. The quickly, middle goes right? away. Like there's nothing yeah. there for those people. You know, it's funny because like, to your point about the methadone, like we don't do a good job moving people from, 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 from one harm to a lesser harm. Right. We're, we're not good about that. Well, the, the, the picture you paint of like the guy on the couch, you know, with the Bible, it's like, oh, well, he, you know, he did it through faith and a force of will. Yeah. Right. And, and the problem is that the, the diametric opposite of that is that you're an addict because you have a lack of faith and, and no will. Right. Yeah. So yeah. those yeah, stories yeah, have yeah, right, right, right. Right. Yeah. So you have to tell, you have to tell both sides of that story. So it's, it's a problematic story because it's dishonest when, what's more likely is like, look, let's switch people from, you know, smoking to vaping. Yeah. yeah you're still addicted to something, but it's so much less harmful. Yeah. Switch you from fucking heroin to methadone and then from maybe methadone to the next thing. Like yeah. we should be pouring resources into finding out like what, what technological and pharmacological solutions exist to maybe not even eradicate. If we can't eradicate, can we reduce? Yeah. Is there, are there, are there harm ameliorations, you know, procedures that we can undergo? Like, how do we take this from a 10? If you can't make it a zero, how do you make it a three? How do you make it a four? Because that's a lot better, yeah, right? I was going to say a four. You yeah. know, like, I mean, I, you're going to expect it to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. But, we, you know, how do we reduce the harm yeah. in the best way that we can? So uh, next week, it's our great hope to have on Dr. Stephen Novella. Dr. Stephen Novella is the 
one of the hosts of Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He's also uh, one of the authors of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, How to Know What's Really Real in a World Increasingly Full of Fake. We're anxious to have him on the show. We're both big fans. And so we're looking forward to that. Next week, we're going to be talking about this topic with him, talking yep. about pharmacies, talk, uh, talking about, we're going to be talking about big pharma. We're going to be talking about Purdue Pharma. We're going to be talking about OxyContin. Um, pain drugs, pain management. So uh, so you're going to want to listen to it. I think it's going to be a great follow-up to this episode. We also want to encourage everybody who's listening right now, if you have a story or if you want to talk about it, if you want to if you want to give us a critique or whatever, send us an email, dissonance.podcast at gmail.com. Um, we will also uh, pay attention to the thread on Facebook. And uh, if there's something on Twitter, we're going to ask Ian to uh, to send it to us. I don't think Tom or I check Twitter anymore. <laughs> but if, if there's something interesting or you want to say something to us, Ian um, will give it to us on Twitter. Or um, like I said, the best way, of course, is through email, email, um, email voicemail, those types of things. If you're going to leave a voicemail, please make sure it's brief. Um, we can't play two, three, four-minute voicemails. We just can't do it. But make sure your voicemail is under a minute long. Um, but we'd love to hear from you. If you have opinions on this subject, if you think we got something wrong, if you think we, you know, there's something else we should look into, please send it to us and uh, and please comment on this on this episode. So that is going to wrap it up for this week. Um, be sure to tune in next week with Dr. Stephen Novella, but we're going to leave you like we always do with the Skeptics Creed. Credulity is not a virtue. It's fortune cookie cutter, mommy issue, hypno Babylon bullshit. Couched in scientician, double bubble, toil and trouble, pseudo quasi alternative, acupunctuating, pressurized, stereogram, pyramidal, free energy, healing, water, downward spiral, brain dead pan, sales pitch, late night info docutainment. Leo Pisces, cancer cures, detox, reflex, foot massage, death and towers, tarot cars, psychic healing, crystal balls, Bigfoot, Yeti, aliens, churches, mosques and synagogues, temples, dragons, giant worms, Atlantis, dolphins, truthers, birthers, witches, wizards, vaccine nuts, shaman healers, evangelists, conspiracy, doublespeak, stigmata, nonsense. Expose your signs. Thrust your hands, bloody, evidential, conclusive. Doubt even this. The opinions and information provided on this podcast are intended for entertainment purposes only. All opinions are solely that of Glory Hole Studios, LLC. Cognitive dissonance makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, currentness, suitability, or validity of any information, and will not be liable for any errors, damages, or butthurt arising from consumption. All information is provided on an as-is basis. No refunds. Produced in association with the local Dairy Council and viewers like you.